Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week's episode features Barbara Kingsolver in conversation with Jess Walter. Jess Walter is the best-selling author of 10 books. He is perhaps best known as a novelist and his novel Beautiful Ruins was a number one New York Times bestseller. Walter's latest book is the story collection, The Angel of Rome. Jess Walter interviews Barbara Kingsolver. Kingsolver is the author of 17 books, including nonfiction, short stories, poetry, and novels. Her novels, of course, include modern classics like The Poisonwood Bible and The Lacuna. Kingsolver is known for socially engaged writing that embraces the psychological and emotional. As she has said, a good book should both trouble and delight the reader and few do that as well as Barbara Kingsolver. Her latest novel is Demon Copperhead, set in rural Appalachia, where Kingsolver was raised and lives today. In the book, she remaps Charles Dickens' Victorian classic David Copperfield onto her real-life community to illuminate the poverty, broken social and education systems, the influence of industrial agriculture, and the targeting of Appalachians by Big Pharma and consequent pervasive and destructive opioid epidemic. Like Dickens, she tells the story through the voice of a resilient kid caught in the crosshairs. The novel is, in the words of the Times UK, like Dickens directed by the Coen brothers. Indeed, against all reason, given the list of totally depressing stuff I just reeled off, poverty, broken systems, addiction, this novel is an absolute blast to read from the very first line, thanks to Kingsolver's inventiveness and Demon's distinctive voice. Many critics have praised it as her best book yet, which is a very high bar to clear for the author of the Poisonwood Bible. In a starred review, Kirkus declared Demon Copperhead, quote, an angry, powerful book seething with love and outrage for a community too often stereotyped or ignored. Indeed, in the novel, Kingsolver expertly balances the social and political with a ripping plot and a character-driven story. And in the end, you come away really feeling like you spent some time in this place that most of her readers probably have never been, and honestly will probably never visit. But that's the power of fiction. It creates empathy. As Kingsolver says, quote, as novelists, we're looking for the universal that makes a reader understand that a human person is a human person, regardless of where and when and how. Let's join Barbara Kingsolver and Jess Walter. We didn't do a thing. I don't yet. know. Welcome to Portland, I guess. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Speaking of which, I I assumed this was going to be an IPA, but it's just water. So, um, <laughs> so I want to start at the beginning, that the origin story and um, reading that you had come at this book with the very theme of trying to tackle the opioid crisis and its incredible impact on your community. Can you remember those things that you were seeing that were, that were driving that impulse? 
Of course I can, because they're still with us. Um, I wrote this book because of where I live. I am Appalachian. I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we've got homegirls in this audience. I left there, um, wanted to see the world, and I did, and I lived in a lot of, a, a lot of other places, remarkable places, like Paris, France, and Tucson, Arizona, and, um, and, and none of them was home. And I was able finally to come back. I live now on the other side of the mountains from Kentucky. I live in the very southwestern tail of Virginia. It's Appalachian. Appalachia is its own place. We're, we're bonded by culture, by geography, history, economics. We tend to think of ourselves more as Appalachian than, I mean, we, we kind of connect more to other Appalachian communities than we do with our own states. So I'm more Appalachian than I am Virginian, for example. And I think people in, you know, other Appalachian, other parts of the region would say that too. So what we have going on right now is um, a terrible disease, opioid use disorder, that has um, torn apart the one asset that means most to us, which is community. And it's, um, it's hard to explain how, how big it is. Every single family I know has lost somebody to overdose. A huge number, we have a generation of kids, in some counties around where I live, like 20 to 30% of kids are being raised by someone other than their parents either foster care or, you know, they're in, in the foster care system or they're being raised by a relative who maybe would rather not be raising them because their parents are incarcerated or not functional or dead. So this is, it's a huge thing that we're living with that I didn't feel was really being understood. But more than that, I think the story that's getting told, and I'm really glad of it, um, some very good journalism has broken open this story, and so a lot of us know now that this was deliberate, that it was incredibly deliberate, that, that Purdue Pharma um, looked at, at the metrics and the data, and they chose three places in the country to target, to pump in, they're extremely addicting painkillers, and they just knew they could flood these regions. Why us? Okay, you, f you feel marked, you know, when you learn that. It was southwestern Virginia, part of eastern Kentucky, and Maine. Why us? Objectively, I could tell you it's because of an extremely overstretched uh, medical care delivery system. We don't have nearly enough doctors. We don't have any specialists. If you have to see a specialist, you have to go to another state, literally, where I live. People with very little time off from work, so they are lucky if they can go to see a doctor once, so there's no follow-up care. So of necessity, there's a lot of prescription pad doctoring. There's a lot of disability. There's a lot of despair and hopelessness because we have very limited employment opportunities. 
very uh, suppressed culture of education. Okay, so why all that? I was just thinking about how this is just the latest in a train of exploits of extractive industries what, uh, that have treated my region essentially as an internal colony of the US. So first they pulled out the timber, then they pulled out the coal, then it was tobacco, and the, 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 the way opioids were brought into our region was just one more of these really calculated efforts to keep our region desperately impoverished and uh, without power. So that's a big story to tell. So <laughs> how to tell it? What I understood is to tell this story, I was going to have to write the great Appalachian novel. And I was... Because you hadn't given yourself enough challenges. Just, right. Just uh, trying, to trying to capture the op opioid well, crisis. I think that I've wanted to... I think maybe my whole half of my life I've wanted to write the great Appalachian novel, but I was scared for a lot of reasons. It's a, it's a huge story. I spent two years kind of just spinning my wheels trying to figure out how can I get into this story because the voice in my head kept saying, nobody wants to read this. Nobody, nobody will read this. It's not just that it's too dark. It's that it's about us. There's a lot of internalized shame. I didn't, I didn't know I was a hillbilly until I left Kentucky and went to college in Indiana and everybody laughed at the way I spoke and um, made cute jokes like, ha, 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 you're wearing shoes. And um, <laughs> the year I went to college was the year that Deliverance came to the movie theaters. <laughs> and it's, it's funny and it's not funny. It, because this is real, this condescension has followed me throughout my entire life. Living where I do, we feel invisible. Appalachians don't see ourselves on the pages of books, in the movies, in, on television, in the news, unless, there, there are two exceptions. If we see ourselves at all, it's as a dumb hillbilly joke or a poverty documentary. That's all we ever see of ourselves. This is so extreme that when I leave the region, I discover that people don't even know how to say Appalachia. They say Appalachia, which is not how anybody, you know, we, that's not how we say it. And I, I thought, well, that's strange. Nobody says Florida, you know. <laughs> they don't say Massachusetts. They say Massachusetts because they've heard people from Massachusetts talking about Massachusetts. I mean, what I'm telling you is you haven't heard us talk about ourselves. And I think it's, it's not just an Appalachian phenomenon. It's an urban-rural phenomenon. All of our, our entertainment, our news, it's all made in cities by urban people. Cities own you know, our, our television our, and, our, uh, and our news and our movies, they own it. And we in the middle of the land feel pretty invisible. The upshot of that is 
I just kept, I felt like I just kept hitting a wall. I can't tell this story. I don't know how to tell this story. I don't think anyone wants to hear it. I didn't know then, but I understand looking back now, it was, it was internalized shame. It was, I was convinced nobody wanted to hear this story. Yeah, and, and, and during those two years, you're researching, you're, you're trying to get your arms around it, you're taking notes, and then a trip to, to England, to uh, Charles Dickens' house, was it, as, was it a lightning bolt-like moment? It was, it, well, it wasn't, I didn't go to England to, to visit Charles Dickens. Uh, I was in the UK for a book tour. I was at the end of a, a, long, a long book tour for um, Unsheltered, and so I'm about to tell you a ghost story, and um, sleep deprivation, I'm sure, had, has a role to play in this, but I was very tired, and I was, I would, I'd finished everything, and I was in London, and I had a weekend to chill before um, I flew home, and my, my husband had come over, and I just was looking for someplace to go, and I saw online this place called Bleak House. The Bleak House where Charles Dickens lived, where he wrote David Copperfield. And it's, it's a, it was an inn. You could just book yourself in there. You could, you could sleep there. So just absolutely, isn't it, isn't it something that such important things in your life hinge on decisions you, <laughs> that could have gone the other way? Just on an absolute caprice, I said, Let's go. Let's go sleep in Charles Dickens's house. So, so we. So, for I, I was I wasn't you know I just wanted a place to sleep honestly. Um, so we took the train. I had I did not have great expectations. Um, <laughs> we took the train out to Broadstairs, and it was a dark and stormy night. And here's this creaky old mansion on the edge of a cliff overlooking Viking Bay. And um, we knocked on the door, and it creaked open. And I swear to God, it was Bob, it was Bob Cratchit. It was just, <laughs> it was so atmospheric. I mean, these people weren't dressed up or anything, but I mean, it just was, it just had this whole feel. And here comes this... I'm not kidding. This little woman comes limping down the stairs saying, may I take your bags? And I said, no, little Dorrit, I'll do it myself. And um, so we were the only guests and we had the run of the place. And um, so Stephen went up to sleep in Charles Dickens's in the Oliver Twist suite. And um, I prowled around and I found Dickens's study at the end of a hall, it had um, those like bow windows, do you know what I'm talking about? It looked out over the ocean and there was his desk and there was all this stuff, uh, like manuscripts, folios, the, um, the or, like original folio, um, the, uh, you know, of course, all of his novels were published in serial form, so that like the original serial folios of David Copperfield. David Copperfield was his favorite book because that was his story. He lived that life. He, um, his father went to debtor's prison. He, I mean, talk about internalized shame. The man had it. He was a child laborer. He 
uh, he wrote David Copperfield out of, I, th I believe, outrage uh, at the way his society threw away poor children. He wrote that as a, his, like his, his creed de car against uh, structural poverty. And I don't think the gentle Victorians wanted to hear it either, honestly. He made them. So I'm in that room. I put my head on the desk, and I just felt this vibe. I just felt, I, I just felt him in that room, and it, it's like he, suddenly he's there saying, you can't write about orphans and poverty? <laughs> you think nobody wants to hear that? It was, I just felt like he, he was telling me, yes, you have to do it, but this is, this, I, this, I heard him say this. He said, um, here's the thing. He didn't say, here's the thing. He's, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was me. <laughs> he said, you let the child tell the story. That, I just got that straight from him, the whole point of view thing. It's everything. You don't, your guard goes down. You listen to the child. That's how you get in. You let that kid who's living it tell that story. And I said, okay, I'll let your child tell the story. I just, right then and there, I had the idea. I will write my uh, own David Copperfield set in my place and my time. And um, just to quickly wrap up this ghost story, I. I was quite, I was really shaken. I don't talk to dead people that much. I, I, w I was, I was shaky and I ran to the Oliver Twist bedroom and I woke up my husband and I said, I just had this conversation with Charles Dickens. <laughs> and, and he said, I can't wait to talk about it in the morning. <laughs> so I... I got my pen and my notebook and I ran back to that, that study and on that desk that night I started this book. And, and thus dies every other author's origin story of their book, I have to say. From that first voice, from that first line, first I got myself born, it, it feels like a voice that it certainly comes to the reader uh, of a piece, like complete and whole and um, bursting to tell his story. I'm really curious what that was like for you, both in, in how that incredible voice, it really is one of the most dynamic voices I can remember in fiction in a long time. Thank you. Uh, and, but also then how you use David Copperfield, because at times it's homage, you know, I would, uh, names would click and I would see this, the, and other times it almost feels structural too. Um, and so it's, it's, it's I, I really, I really used, <laughs> I used the source material very, uh, uh, just, uh, I just kind of actually laid my plot right out on top of his. I didn't know that night when I started it, I didn't know that it would work that well. It had been at least a dozen years since I'd read David Copperfield. I remembered kind of the story arc, the character, but I'd, I'd forgotten enough of the details. I wasn't sure if I could really translate that plot 
into what I wanted to do. So I downloaded it uh, in the airport, um, thanks to you know the Gutenberg project. I, you know, you can get anything. And I read it on the plane home, and I just like chapter by chapter, I saw this is this is really gonna work. Um, it's like I mean, all right. The worst part of writing is your first draft, right? It's by far, it's like giving birth. It's so hard. Have you ever secretly wished you could subcontract your first draft? <laughs> to Charles Tell Dickens? the truth. Yeah. Okay. If you are going to do it, Dickens is your man. I mean, he had, and it was, it was an amazing experience, actually, to work with him, you know, at my elbow, just studying that that uh, that structure, that plot, those characters, and I mean, I, I I I've loved Dickens forever, and I admire Dickens, and he's you know he's just like such a hand with the crackerjack plot, all these things we know. But I discovered, well, I mean, it, this was a master class in Dickens, so I started seeing his tricks, like how he's manipulating us. Like there's um, something he does a lot is what I would call the cadence of coincidence, where he'll develop a character and a kind of a, a, a spark of the story and then it kind of fades. And just when you start thinking, well, we're not gonna see Estella again or, or, or Tommy in my case, bing, there's Tommy. Yeah. And you're, all, you're happy to see him. And it's the way he, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the, the way he released these novels. They were like, the limited HBO series of his day. Yes. You know, they were, he, they were released in like 32 page serial uh, installments. So he, I honestly don't know. Did he have it all in his head or did he write one of these and then write another one? I'm mystified by that because dang, I couldn't do, I mean, I couldn't like, could you finish chapter one and send it out before you've, written and it, chapter two, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And because of that, it's so episodic. And as I was reading, I thought, well, it, it made contemporary fiction feel a little thin to me. The, yeah. uh, the auto-fiction that we read sometimes that is so clearly, you know, the two weeks of the author's life or something. It's unplotted. It's not yeah. structured. It's, it's not built. Right. It's not, yeah. it's not uh, sculpted. Yeah, that kind of that kind of a plot takes so much work, so much writing and rewriting, and I'm not answering your question at all. <laughs> I knew, okay, once I figured out I see where this kid this this kid's going to tell the story and I see where he's going to go and it is going to be some really dark, howling dark, hard places. You have to love this kid. So, the first person point of view is a is a great gift. That really helps, but it has to be a voice you want to listen to for, what is it, 513 pages or something? And I'm just, okay, I'm just going to say, David Copperfield is like 700 pages. <laughs> so, so I did you a favor, okay? So you ran out of gas. Then. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, you, I knew, I knew you were, you're going to have to love this kid and you're going to have to love the way he talks, he, his enga your engagement with him has to be just pretty ferociously tight. So I, 
Okay, that, that first night, I saw him. I saw my copperhead. I didn't know his first name yet, but I saw this kid with penny-colored hair, copper hair, coppery hair, and ad- attitude, and, a, you know, a mouth on him, as my mamma would say. You know, he's funny, and he's, uh, he's doesn't have any idea how smart he is or how, how good he is, but uh, he's really mad. But he also needs a way of talking that's really him. And this was, you know, this is the way I'm going to make Charles Dickens' story my story is to tell it in my language. The way Demon talks, I mean, minus 700 F-bombs per hour, is the way I grew up talking. Um, that's the way I still, my, you know, I still talk when I'm home. We, that's our language. And Appalachian speech is, is, it's full of poetry. It's full of stories. They say it's, um, it's closer to Elizabethan English because it hasn't, we, because it hasn't changed as much as English in other parts of the U.S. So, um, it's, it's unique. Interestingly, a lot of what's unique about it is what marks us and sort of what we're scorned for. It's kind of become, um, it's, it's become a, jo- a jokey, like, well, see, okay, like, I reckon is a good example. When British people say they reckon something, it sounds all highbrow, but when I say I reckon, <laughs> you just put a, you put a straw hat on me and a fishing pole and the XXX jug. I mean... It's not, it's not funny, you know? I mean, it's okay that you laugh because you're conditioned to laugh, but this is, it's, it's, uh, it's the same reckon, is my point. Like, they, when, when we say I reckon, it, that's pure, that's good English. It's, um, it's related to reconnoiter. It's a good word. So many of our words that we get, you know, sort of laughed at for, are really very poetic. So I wanted to work with that language and give him, instead of, there's a way that um, Southern or, or rural or Appalachian speech is sometimes conveyed on the page, which I call Uncle Remus language, where words are misspelled to, to suggest pronunciation. I hate that. Because that's demeaning. It's, it's degrading. It suggests that it, our language is substandard. So what I needed to do is really, really lean on the, um, the idioms and the syntax and these special things we say that are, are unique to us. Like we say whenever, when you would say when. Like we say whenever I went to the grocery store this morning. We say... Um, something happened on accident. All of these little things, I just tried to really think about how to use this, not to mention, you know, the, the poetry of our insults and our... And uh, the profanity. Uh, yeah, yeah, and profanity. She's, he was ugly as a mud stick fence, yeah. ugly as homemade sin in the heat of summer. I remember my, my mamma saying that. So just you know, to try to use that language in a beautiful way to give him character and, um, and also, but also I had to titer it. I had to kind of bring you into it 
gently so that you wouldn't put a straw, you know, you wouldn't like stereotype him on page one. So I didn't use I reckon on page one. I didn't use the word holler, which is also another way. I live in a holler. Um, that's a very common word where I live that marks us to outsiders as, you know, as kind of a joke. So I waited on, you know, very carefully until page 10 or 11 to use some of those words. <laughs> So, you know, to sort of get you on board with him before you you judge him. I don't mean you. You're all just so nice. You would never judge anybody. <laughs> In some sense, yeah, it just it just came. I heard him speaking from the beginning. I heard his anger and his 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 sass. Um, his resilience, all those things. But of course, you know, it comes through many, many, many revisions to get it all, to get it all right. And another thing is that he came out of the gate so mad. He was really, really angry that I realized, you know, I'd written about a hundred pages and went back and read and I thought, I wonder how many times he has dropped the F-bomb in the first 100 pages. So I just did a search, you know, on your computer. You just do a search, and it gives you a number. 178. <laughs> and I thought, that, that might be a little much. Um, just in general, I, I realized I needed to dial him back. It wasn't just a matter of the language and his F-bombs, but also, I mean, in the, very, in the early drafts, he was a little off-putting in the way that, you know, a boy that comes at you spitting nails is going to be off-putting. And so I, I gentled him. I, I, I loved I that him about back. him. And, and I loved the way you, you used the vernacular, but also tempered that anger, which was real, with self-awareness and this incredible sense of humor. And I, I know you've had written first-person voices before those amazing alternating voices in the Poisonwood Bible jump out as incredible first-person voices. But this one, you know, you're sort of with this voice for the entire novel. There's, there's no escape. So that, that yeah. seems like that humor, that like you almost had to like him as well, I would imagine, as you were Of around. course. I wouldn't adopt him. I love him. Um, I still love him. I, you know, I kind of hated to to leave him, you know, send him off into the sunset. I won't tell you where if you haven't read the book yet, but it, it was hard. It was a hard several years going to my desk every day thinking, oh God, what am I going to do to demon today? You know, just, it was truly, um, it, there was a lot of anguish, you know, in what I, what these places I had to go with him. But there was also joy because I knew he was going to survive it. And of course, you know he's going to survive it because that's part of the wonderful trick, let's just face it, of the first person. You know he's going to survive because he's telling you the story. So, so, I mean, seriously, that's super important. I was, th I was thinking about that, you know, just the importance of that device, of the hero's journey. I sent a draft... To, do you know the writer Lee Smith? You know Lee Smith? You should know Lee Smith. She's wonderful. Um, and she's Appalachian. She w grew up not too far from where I live. And um, I sent her a, a draft, uh, you know, an early draft to read. And she, <laughs> she called me. She said, Barbara, 
I was so scared. I was just, I just, I just kept thinking, I'm so scared. He's going to die. What's he going to, he's going to die. And then I said, no, Lee, he's telling the story. <laughs> so it's there. That's, it's, it's just the beautiful gift of point of view. To keep you hopeful, he has to have this, ch this charm and this kind of internal spark of resilience. There's one of his uh, friends, and Emmy, his first crush, at one point in this kind of confessional moment they're having it, it, as teenagers, she says, it's like you have some metal inside of you that never melts down. He doesn't know this about himself, but you know it about him. And likewise, his first, um, when he ch goes to a new middle school and he's, uh, he goes to the school counselor, and the counselor is looking through his, you know, pages and pages of DSS files, and he sees everything this kid has been through. And he says to Demon, well, one thing I know I can say about you is you are resilient. And Demon says, are you going to give me drugs for that? <laughs> he thinks it's a, a, a diagnosis. He doesn't know, but but that... That's something that um, that's really important to me to convey because in my in you know my hope in writing the great Appalachian novel to the best of my abilities is that these you know this invisibility this that we have lived with or this you know this condes this cultural condescension that we've lived if is is because we haven't been able to represent ourselves and i wanted to show i mean of course the problems and this you know i wanted to really delve into this you know the the, the background of this structural um, this, these structural, these institutional inequalities that um, that we deal with, but also I wanted to to, to give you the nuance and the um, the full range of who we are, the full kind of ecosystems of characters that we are and that we can be, and really get across to you a couple of really important things about Appalachia. One is that we're people made of community, the way we're enmeshed with each other, the way we take care of each other and know each other and know everybody's business, um, which is not that fun when you're a teenager. But... Um, in the long run is really remarkable. I wanted to I wanted to share that and show that and also that resilience, which I think is a characteristic of many, you know, oppressed cultures is that you hang together and you uh, are resourceful and you figure out how to do things for yourself. And that's a demon really um, embodies all those values. You really feel that sense of community in the Peggett family, for instance, the way they're just braided throughout. And, um, Everywhere you go, there's yeah. the, the way we'd say, you couldn't walk around here without stepping on a Peggett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and if I, it's funny, um, I told you my wife is a school counselor, and so we both sort of slapped our heads and said, if you're gonna write a novel about a Dickensian institution in the year 2020, or you know, whenever it is, of course you would write about foster care. Um, uh, quick story, we had, uh, my working class family took in foster kids because when my sister went off to, first to go off to college, we had an open bedroom, and so you gotta fill it. So. We had foster brothers, and 
And I remember that sort of sense of low-grade hopelessness um, when they would go back to their other lives. And I was a newspaper reporter, and I got a phone call. I had just written a story about a baby that had drowned. And um, I got a phone call from one of my old foster brothers saying, I'm in, the j I'm in jail. That was my baby you wrote about. We were stoned, and the baby drowned. And I remember this, and he just said, the year we, that I lived with you was the one good year of my life. And I remember as I was reading this novel, I just remember thinking that that system that is set up, which is filled with so many people trying to help, and 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 demon has has people who are good to him, who try to help people who take advantage of the system. But it really is a it really is a system that you know, in the way that Dickens could have this audacity of event, you almost can't believe each thing that happens. And yet Demon's story is so believable because I'm guessing it comes from research, from things that really happen in those cases. It, it does. Um, I, had to, I had to do a lot of, of um, research. I had to do a lot of talking to a lot of people at DSS in the foster care system and even, you know, and also in, in uh, people who are living with opioid use disorder, people who are in recovery, a lot of those things. A point of entry for me and, and really probably ultimately the reason that I wrote this book, that I felt like I needed to write this book, is that my older daughter is a mental health counselor and she works with teenagers. She, day after day, she works with the demons of Southwest Virginia, uh, male and female. And I'm not saying that she told, you know, she didn't break confidentiality. She didn't tell me, you know, individual stories. But, you know, my daughter and I are very close and I, I know a lot about um, what's going on because of her. And, you know, she vetted every man. She also, you know, she connected me with the right people to talk with in DSS and, and so forth. And I was, I mean, I thought I was pretty savvy and I was still shocked to find out things like the fact that the foster care, is, the foster care system is run as a for-profit business. So the, the kids are products uh, fundamentally, and it's, I mean, I think the foster care of yesteryear and also probably even of this year in many places is much better than it is where I live because what ha we had this, this, this mushrooming of need where I read that in Lee County, I won't get these numbers exactly right, but it was something like you know, in 1990, there were nine kids in the foster system, and now there's like, you know, 900 or something. It's just like every everything changed except for the resources. You know, it's, with the same resources, they've had to, to do double, triple, quadruple each year, more and more work. So these poor DSS workers are stressed, you know, to the... To the, to the back teeth. They're just really tired. They're very underpaid. Another thing I didn't know until I researched this novel is that you're, when you're in foster care, your DSS caseworker is your legal guardian. And these caseworkers are so poorly paid. I mean, really, like, substantially less than like a school teacher's pay. It's so it's a job that people don't keep very long. There's a lot of turnover and so many kids and so 
files get lost, and so it's a really common circumstance for a kid not to know the name of his legal guardian and vice versa. This is shameful. This is, this is our future that we're raising. And I know it's not just where I live. I know we were talking before, it's in Spokane, it's fentanyl now here. This insidious problem that began in a prescription bottle has, has bled out into many, many places. And I have to say, I think partly because this, these problems began in rural areas, they haven't gotten the same kind of, of federal attention. And um, what worries me is, as I said before, I, really, I greatly admire the journalism that cracked open the case, you know, the Sackler family, and we've heard, we've 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 seen the big story of the, you know, the DEA and the lawyers and you know the attorneys general and this these cases they brought against the Sacklers and all that, and these big settlements, and I'm afraid that people think because of that justice has been done. It hasn't. That money isn't coming home to my community. It's not coming to these kids. These kids are are with these kids who have lived through this trauma are, are our future. They're with us forever. So, so what I hope I can do is bring some, some, put some light on this and bring some compassion to, um, to these problems that are, are hard to look at. Uh, and I think the thing that fiction, oh yeah, please. Yeah. We were talking backstage a little bit about, you know, what, what the novel could do in, in Dickens' time. And, and I think it still does that because, you know, I, I watched Dope Sick and was so moved and outraged in those same ways. But the difference is your descriptions of Demon in the throes of his opioid addiction are something that you get out of fiction. You get that jolt of empathy because, and especially in a book written as closely as this one is. Um, and so even though you can see the effects of it on a television show or a movie or reading a magazine article, there is something different about fiction. There is something- Oh, isn't there ever? Yeah. I mean, that's, this is why we're doing it, right? Fiction, fiction has magical powers. It's- <sighs> And I mean, I, so I hear people say, you know, but it's not real. It is real. It's in some ways the most real way that we can get information about other people. We're these animals that lived for, you know, millennia, many of them, without newspapers, without writing. We got information from each other. That's how we're wired. We, we take information from people we trust. We learn, from, we learn from direct experience. So we're also, we've got these great big brains and it's you know, wonderful that we can read, you know, we can turn th these squiggly lines on a page into information and pictures in our brain. All well and good to receive information, but it's different when you, because when you read a novel, the magical power there is that you put, you put your life down on the bedside table and you go inside another human brain. That's, that's amazing. 
you're inside another brain, you're looking through another person's eyes, you, their children are your children, you know, their fears are your fears, you just experience another life, and it's, it completely erases the otherness, and so if you can go into the lives of people who are very different from you, by separated from you by by gender, by race, by class, by geography, even by time, by era, and then come back into your life. You're not the same person. You're different and you feel differently for the other. That's what's going to save us. And so I'm guessing you think the novel still has that power, even though it's, I mean, it's so much diminished from the time it was, as you say, in Dickens' day, it was The Wire, um, and yet it still seems to be almost the only vehicle for that. It, well, there's a reason that it's, it sticks around. You know, we've had, fun, a novel has been basically a novel, you know, for, for hundreds of years. Once we hit on that, that form, we stuck with it, and... I know that, you know, we, we bemoan all of the other things that, you know, we do now instead of reading, but I, I read one time that, there, that the, the, popul, the proportion of the population that reads, liter, that reads novels now is, is, is roughly the same as the proportion that read them in Cervantes' time. Right? So, I mean, back, for different reasons. Back then, it was because of illiteracy and, you know, and being enslaved. And, and now it's because of video games. But... <laughs> a different kind a different, of liter like, yeah, literary enslavement. Exactly. Yes. But you see my point. I mean, there's, there's always going to be some of us who, who, who do that. And then I guess we... You know, we use that empathy and we just ooze it out to the people around us who are on video games. I don't know quite how it works. No, I just, I'm, I'm really hopeful. And I, of course, you know, I was kind of making a little bit of a meta point here by, you know, taking this novel about thrown away children 175 years ago and telling the same story now, and in case you missed it, I put a little epigram in front that said, it, it was a quote from Dickens basically saying, you know, if you, if you, if you ignore the past, you're doomed. Um, so he said it more eloquently than that. But, um, but yes, of course, those of us who are still tilting at windmills believe in and 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 readers who follow us um and i don't mean on social media although you can if you want to those who who follow us in this endeavor of tilting at windmills believe that this is a really powerful way to keep us engaged with the human condition and i I'm especially optimistic because I've been at this a while. My first novel came out in 1989. So that's, that's a long career. And um, in that time, I will tell you that, that um, 35 years ago, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, when I sat down you know, to, to an interview, the journalists basically always asked me in one way or another, why do you think you're allowed to do this? I mean, 
they were slightly more, more polite than that, but not much. It's sort of like, I have always taken on um, the things that seem important to me, big questions. Socially engaged literature is what I do. And 25 years ago, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, it was every single, every single interview got around somehow to, can you really do that, or is that bad art? People don't ask that question anymore. That question went away. I outlived it. <laughs> well, I, I could ask questions forever, but um, I think there's some cards for people to ask questions, so I'll ask one more, and then, um, but in a case of putting your money where your mouth is or your mouth where your money is, I'm not sure which, you start, you helped start the Penn Bellwether Award for literature of social change, which is that very thing you're talking about, showing that, you know, the, the sort of, the sort of change that Dickens could make in the culture of novel is still. So thank, thank you for that. Too. Well, you're welcome. And I'm, I, I just, I, I'm amazed. I mean, nobody, nobody goes into novel writing for the money. Well, if they do, <laughs> they're going to be surprised. But, um, <laughs> but there is, uh, but amazingly, Demon, Demon is, has really brought, brought it home uh the bacon and 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 so I'm so happy as soon as I as soon as I finish this tour I'm meeting the uh the people in southwest Virginia who who do work in rehabilitation like who are um organizing uh sort of trying to improve the rehab situation and demon is going to establish um an outpatient rehab clinic for teenagers in Lee County. I'm so happy about it. That's marvelous. I, we the, have 100 questions. The, uh, the first one is, how are your turkeys slash farm? <laughs> I don't think that one's for me. <laughs> um, I still live on a farm. I, I think I know you're referring to. Um, I wrote a, a nonfiction book with my family called "Animal Vegetable Miracle." About it was, it was. Thank you. It was uh, ostensibly it was a narrative of our our year of of growing our own food and and just basically eating locally and eating mindfully. And we had these turkeys. Um, we discovered that turkeys in the modern era have been bred to be so docile that they don't know how to have sex. Um, true fact. They have to uh, have turkey inseminators. That's a job. Like, can you imagine, like, threatening your children? If you don't make good grades, you could... So, um, anyway, we won't go there. But... Um, but anyway, we don't. We actually don't have turkeys anymore. That line died out. But um, we, we, I still live on that farm. We still eat locally. Um, we, we actually now live in this wonderful community of uh, many uh, other agrarian, young agrarians. Sustainable farms have moved in around us. We have this great community, and um, uh, yeah. And so I, I still, instead of turkey. Coaxing turkeys into having sex. Now, um, 
I, I you know, I grow root vegetables. Uh, and we have sheep, and I knit. Um, we have, we have, uh, that if you're interested, because there's, like, a lot of people say, are you, st you know, who followed us through uh, Animal Vegetable Miracle are curious. I have an Instagram account. It's my name, basically. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're curious to see farm, farm stuff, it's, it's on there, so. Anyway. That turkey business sounds harrowing. I Harry, think, uh, <laughs> harrowing. It was embarrassing, really. Yeah. And, and the next question, these are great questions, by the way. How has your community responded to the book, and is it available to young folks in Appalachia? It is. We've, um, no one's trying to ban it? for. Well, I'm sure some people are. Yeah. Um, it's it, lang the language, you know, is 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 a thing, um, because there are parents who don't know that that's what their children are hearing at school. <laughs> My local community and sort of region's response to this book has been so heartening to me. Um, I wrote it, as I say, for my people. You know, they say that book that that novels are are windows and mirrors, and I really wanted it to be both. I wanted people from outside our place to see us more respect, more honestly and respectfully. And I also wanted us to be, to see ourselves. I know if I'd seen myself on, a, on the page of a book, you know, in, in, my, in my teenage years, it would have changed so much for me. It would have meant everything. So I've been delighted to work with my publisher to get, we've actually gotten classroom sets of this novel into some high schools in the region, including Lee County High. And, and when, um, when this novel won that, that Pulitzer thing happened, it was... I like you could see the fireworks. I mean, not literally fireworks, but it was just like our phones all just exploded. It was, it was like we all won. You know, we really. Um, I was, I was. In in my reading lifetime, which is a pretty long one, I've never seen that kind of literary respect from the gatekeepers, you know, of literature, capital L in this country, never seen that given to an Appalachian novel. It never happened. So, and, and on, I will tell you the truth, when people, you know, people say these things, you should win the, you should win the Pulitzer for, you know, people have said that to me for many years, and I have said, no, no, People like me don't win those prizes. I'm writing for you. I'm writing for readers. And I am writing for you. I am writing for readers. But it, it meant the world to my community that that prize fell to Demon. So... Uh uh, Demon's artistic outlet becomes comics quite really quickly. Um, what, as you were writing, did you imagine what uh, your superpower would be or what demons, uh, Demon might give you for a superpower? Or do you have one that we don't know about? I, I do have a superpower. That's a, it's funny. It's a personal question, but I'll answer it anyway. Um, I don't sleep very much. I have... I have, I have sort of extreme chronic insomnia. And I spent a lot of years being mad about it 
And then, then I realized, but because I mean, I can just function still just fine on very little sleep. So then I realized, no, this is my superpower. I have like four more hours in every day than you do. <laughs> so, um, so that's my superpower. I try to use them well. Only a novelist would turn a chronic uh, symptom into a superpower. That's perfect. Uh, I love some of these questions are really in, intense literary questions, and some are, do you have a dog? So I'll, I'll let you take that one first. Yes, his name is Hugo. Hugo? What kind of dog is Hugo? He's a border collie. He, he, he herds the yeah. sheep. Um, this is a question about, in all your works of fiction, do you have a favorite character, and is there a character most like you? And I'm curious about this book. Uh, I, I'll find myself, you know, sneaking, not myself in, but some character who ends up being a, sometimes a surrogate for something I might think or something I might see. Did you find yourself in, in any of Demon's world? There's a lot of me in Demon, believe it or not. And it's funny because... Um, um, you know how, like, are you, do people always ask you, well, now no, this is about you, right? Or which, right. Did, you really did that, right? Which of these characters is you? They always, it, you, write a nonfiction book and people are, are going to doubt your facts. <laughs> write a novel and they will insist that it is all true. And, <laughs> and, and it isn't, and it's, it's, it's so much harder than that. We don't just like pluck people out of our lives and stick them in the novel because it wouldn't work. Our job is to improve on real life. Get, invest it, which doesn't necessarily mean like give it a happier ending. It is about making real life make a whole lot more sense. You know, we invest, everything is in the novel because it, it has meaning. We invest incident and character with meaning that's what we do it's really hard work it's 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 and so i used to be really insulted when people said oh this is all these characters are all real people and i just felt like no it was a lot harder than that <laughs> yeah. while smiling and you know being polite but um then after a while i understood that this is a compliment because people don't make People, most people don't make up lies for a living. And, and if you don't, you know, you don't really, it's hard for you to imagine world building, lying, you know, creating with so much detail that it's convincing. So if you think it really happened, then I've done my job. So, but I don't, I mean, and some people do write about themselves. Autofiction is a thing. Um, I don't. Um, I always figure I can do way better than that. But there is also, I mean, you have, to, you have to know every one of your characters from the inside. So I, I believe that I, to pull this off, I have to really love every one of my characters, even the bad ones, even the sociopaths. I have because they think they're doing the right thing. They do, you know, like, like the worst person you can think of, and probably a lot of you are thinking of the same person. Um, uh, 
He is so convinced he's right. You know, and so to write, and I'm not going to write about him, but just, um, but, but, you know, when you, when you create a character who's, the, you know, the bad guy or the bulldog, or in this case, the dangerous friend, Steerforth, who's my uh, version is fast forward, um, I have to get inside there and know who he is and, and love him because we all love ourselves some, some way, even if we don't, we like, we're attached. Um, so in that process, I feel like the, I invest every character with some of me. But interestingly, I do feel like Demon might have more of me in him than pretty much any character I've ever written. And nobody is saying, oh, now he's you. It's the opposite. I mean, I, I love... What I love about engaging with social media is that, like, the, the, the young people talking, like, book talk. Book talk is incredible, you know? Um, young people having these conversations on social media about books and how much they love books and how much books, you know, affect them. I really love that. But I see a certain amount of chatter um, to the effect of, how does this grandma person know what it's know about teenagers? And and you know what? I was one. Um, and I remember it really well. Don't you? I mean, okay. When I think about like, what do I remember from being thirty-three? Nothing. Um, what do I remember from being 13? Everything, everything. It's so into those years, like for, from 11 to 18 are so intense. I mean, I some of it maybe is like the chemical effect of hormones on the brain. Some of it is just the novelty of everything. Just all of the new adult situations that you're that you're trying to navigate and how extremely self-conscious you are about absolutely everything. It's just, it sticks with you. So something that this, I mean, I'm amused by this, you know, that question about the grandma person, but it has also made me, I mean, there are many reasons that I, I'm delighted to be the age that I am. And one of them is that as a writer, the older you get, the more different people you've been and it gives you it's it's really true and it's not just as a writer as whatever you are you still have all of those people inside of you and that gives you like this richness of humanity of empathy of 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 interest it's like many different people inside of you are are still there so for a writer especially it's fabulous. I'm so glad I'm not, um, you know, an athlete or a model where you just age out at 29. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I sort of sense that that, uh, that sense of outrage that uh, Demon had that, that the author probably uh, was channeling a lot of that. I'm I not was, surprised. I was, a, I was an angry teenager. Yeah. I was a bullied teenager. Yeah. I, did, I was... Um, I had a lot of um, shame, a lot of self-consciousness. I, um, yeah, no, I, I lived a lot of those things. Slam books, mm -hmm. 
Anybody here remember slam books? As they, they have been replaced by social media, but um, it's to the same effect. But no, it's, um, it was, maybe that's why I, well, I forgot the question. Oh, I no, think no, it was. You <laughs> it. No, I you think it, it was something about do some characters stick with yeah, me. Yeah. The, um, some more than others. There's a um, kind of a a drinking game we play in my house where it's like okay, t take one character from every one of Barbara's novels and put them all in one scene. So it's like Eddie Bondo walks into Rachel Price's bar at the equatorial. So my family is very, and I just gave you the impression that my family sits around drinking. Not true. They it's, stand sometimes. They, yeah. Just sometimes, just, you know, the occasional. But I think if I had, well, I think Demon will be with me forever and Taylor Greer will be with me forever because she, she got me into this whole thing. Um, and, and Ada Price. That's great. Ada Price. Uh, do you listen to music when you write, um, or and do you listen to music in general? Do you have favorites? Um, I'm a music person. I am a musician. Everyone in my family plays music. Um, I have quite um, quite eclectic musical tastes. But when I'm writing, mm -mm, I need absolute silence because there's so much going on in my head it's very noisy in here so I can't have anything else going on um, how does your earlier work in the sciences play a role if any in your work now I think everything well if you didn't know I I I never took a writing class <laughs> I'm, I'm a complete fraud um, no, that's not true. I took one creative writing class in, in college, but I didn't do the MFA. I didn't do all those things. I studied biology. I was very lucky to get to go to college. Where I grew up, almost nobody went to college. And so when I got there, I felt like... Also, where I came from, nobody was going to be an artist when they grew up. It would have... It just You just didn't think that way. Um... So I got to college and I thought that I should study something practical and so I studied biology and then I went to graduate school in ecology and evolutionary biology. I love biology. I, I, I'm a scientist. I feel like I think like a scientist. I feel like in some ways I write novels like a scientist. It's always there, my understanding of the natural world as um, not, I think of, other species is not separate from us because I happen to know that they're not. We're all connected, like everything, all the oxygen you're breathing right now, guess what? Leaves out there made that for you, and without those leaves, you couldn't breathe. So having studied biology, I just have this, con you know, just everyday awareness of that, and um, I feel like it gives me material. You know that, um, and and maybe another small superpower because I'm one of only maybe three novelists on planet Earth that got graduate degrees in science instead of an MFA. So I just feel like it brings me into this business in you know maybe a different way. So I'm happy to kind of occupy that niche to use an ecological metaphor and. Um, just and you, and I mean, it's the writer that I am, and I'm and I I feel like it does help a lot. 
If anyone wondered if they were, you know, at the beginning of this journey, uh, what they should study in school, I think it's a good idea to learn a lot of other things before you become a writer because you have to have stuff to write about. It's just really simple. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you these questions because some of them are so great, including this one from Axel, who is a young man who appreciates the way you wrote a male POV. So I'll let you look through these later, but um, I'm just gonna ask you two last quick questions and then we'll free you for the evening. The first, who is your favorite Dickens character from all the books? Do you have one? It feels like it's probably gotta be David. Well, now it is, yeah. It's just, you know, like I'm married to the guy. Okay, I'm gonna say Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> I, I discovered Dickens when I was 11. I read A Christmas Carol, and I just, it, it blew my mind. I just like, I went to my brothers and sisters, my brother and sister, and said, this is amazing, this story. You know, they, like, nobody's ever heard of Dickens before I discovered him. This story, it's just got, like, Christmas past and Christmas future, and it's all a metaphor, and it's about, like, how a person can change, and they're like, okay. And I, so I wrote, um, I, I wrote a puppet, I wrote a screenplay, like a puppet play for, uh, for um, A Christmas Carol, and we made puppets, and it kind of petered out because we didn't have an audience, but... Um, <laughs> I said, you know, at age 11, I was so taken by the idea that this per that people can change, that a person who everybody's written off, a person who is just su such a such a shriveled up, lonely, angry soul could have an experience that would change him and make him generous. I just, I love that so much. I think that's, that's stuck with me forever. Since, since you mentioned Great Expectations, I think mine is Pip and uh, Magwitch, that you would have this sponsor that wasn't who you thought it was. I thought right. it was one of the great. The big surprise. Yeah. Last question, and it's a very small one. Um, we talked earlier about, you know, in the Northwest, we've got this in Portland, Seattle, Spokane, we have terrible fentanyl problems that are an outgrowth of the very thing you wrote about. Knowing that we're still in the midst of this, that children are still suffering, orphans are being created, what gives you hope? You know, you finish a novel, writing a novel like this, it, doing that research, embedding yourself, do you come away as hopeful as you feel for Demon? I'm hopeful because I have to be. And I'm gonna say you have to be also. I don't, I don't think it's a choice. And I don't think that like optimism, or, well optimism's a different thing. But being hopeful isn't like an intrinsic characteristic like blue eyes or something. Hopeful is, is, is something you do. And I think that it's, um, it's a duty, because if you stop hoping, you're giving up. You're saying, fine, I will use the plastic, I will burn the fuel, I will, you know, just, just use everything that's left and doom my children and your children. And we can't, that's child abuse. We can't give up on the future of humanity. That's not an option, right?
So, so you work at it. It's, your, it's part of your job. You get up in the morning and you put on hope with your shoes and you wear them out there and you will wear them thin and you will wear them out. Sometimes by the end of a day, your hope will be ragged and threadbare, but the next morning, you put, it, you put on a new one. You get to do that because the alternative is immoral. So I appreciate that you do things like this. You come to a community of like-minded people to celebrate fiction. I, I appreciate that you support your local independent bookstores. I, I appreciate that you read this novel, or maybe you didn't yet, but you're gonna. Um, <laughs> that you did that thing that we talked about earlier of, of putting yourself aside and becoming someone else who might be a little scary. Someone who is, someone who is, ad, who is addicted to opioids. To feel what that's like, as scary as that is, and come back out of it with a new understanding of this as a disease that is not cured by incarceration, that is cured by medicine and compassion, like other diseases. <laughs> the fact that you are doing all these things and all the other little things that you do, little and big things, like carrying your water bottle around instead of using single-use plastics, um, all of, all of those things add up. And I thank you for them, and I will, I've, I, I'm so glad I got to be with you just for this one night, and I will um, leave tomorrow feeling hopeful because you're just great. Thank you. That was Barbara Kingsolver, author of Demon Copperhead interviewed by novelist Jess Walter in front of a live audience of more than 2,600 people at the Keller Auditorium in downtown Portland, Oregon on October 17th, 2023. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for radio and podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jochi Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thank you to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.